Let me open a prayer if I could, all right? Father, again, thank you for the truths of your word. As we look into your truth, Father, we want to know what it says. We want to believe what it says. We want to walk it out. And I ask, Father, just take your word, hide it in our heart. Help us as we grapple with some of these scripture passages. And honestly, Father, some of them are not real easy and have been debated in the Christian community for centuries. And I ask you, Father, that you would give us wisdom this evening as we learn, as we investigate, and that when we're done, that we would arrive at some personal conclusions about these things concerning the Lord's Supper. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, I have heard that uh, Lutherans do not necessarily believe in consubstantiation, and that was new to me. Would you... How would... Was that a, fra- a, yeah, word, a, a, I mean, a word that was tossed around? It did, like, it did get tossed around, but it's in a modified version of okay. that. It's more of right. like a spiritual element to it than actual physical. What was that word? Yes, again? okay. Consubstantiation. We're going to get to this. Do you have your notes, everybody? Yes. And you're going to see those two words, transubstantiation and consubstantiation, right there at the top. Um, now, I didn't grow up either Catholic or Episcopal. Uh, I was christened in the Methodist Church. I then, my family, and when I was in second grade, went to a Presbyterian church. And then we eventually went to a conservative congregational church. I then went to a, um, wow, what happened after that? I went to a charismatic non-denominational church. Um, And then I went to a very... uh, strong Calvinistic Presbyterian church and um, was a charismatic, uh, if I can use that term and it be understood. Uh, and I, I was the, I worked with the teens there. I can remember one time it was the senior pastor was, we were saying, he was saying goodbye after two, two and a quarter years, Meredith and I were married and we were heading out to Phoenix, Arizona. And they said, well, you know, we really appreciate Mike and he's just such a charismatic person. And I immediately thought, oh, how did he find out? Oh, wait a second, wait a second. Okay, I'm, I'm misunderstanding what he just said. And, but yeah, the pastor did not realize that I was charismatic. And I, I thought, I believe I was very careful and how I came across. Whenever I, I never embraced uh, infant baptism, there are certain doctrines within Calvinism that I, I did not embrace. Um, at that point, I was probably much more Calvinist than I am today. Uh, I would not even call myself a Calvinist, and I'm not sure Calvinist would call me Calvinist. a Calvinist. Um, Arminians might think I am, but uh, I'm, I'm neither. So I, I have found my own personal understanding of these doctrines. But I, I personally did not come across transubstantiation and concept what? Um, I, I didn't, those weren't words that were used in, in my church. Um, the word remembrance was used. And that's, that's a, a view that I held back then, hold to today. And uh, as we get into this discussion, this study on the Lord's Supper, we're going to look at a number of different things, and I hope I have time to look at all of it. But transubst—excuse me, 1 Corinthians 11 is where we're going to start, and then I wanted to look at some varying views and what does Scripture teach on some of these things and what are some cautions. And 
I think that for the most part, depending, we may hold to an extreme, but for the most part, these views are not salvation-oriented. They're not salvation-based. They're not rooted in the gospel. And by that, I mean that if you adhere to transubstantiation, that doesn't mean you're going to hell, okay? Or if you adhere to consubstantiation, you're going to hell. Or if you hold to my view, remembrance or memorial, you're going to hell. Uh, This is not a salvation issue. Um, for some people, though, it can be, we'll get into that, um, and in all honesty, I don't know the degree to which some Catholics would hold to that view of transubstantiation, but I will throw it out there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to be starting with verse 23. Can I just say, before I read, that Luke and Paul draw from the same, the same tradition that is slightly different than Matthew and Mark. And what I mean by that is when you look at Matthew and Mark on certain things, they parallel each other. And on some of those uh, stories that are told or encounters or quotes from Jesus, Luke can tend to say it a little differently. Um, And that doesn't mean that, you know, well, one of them's wrong. It doesn't mean that. But they are communicating the story or the words of Jesus slightly different. The truth is none of them are exactly right because they're writing in Greek and Jesus spoke in Aramaic. So the the truth is what they are writing is absolutely from the heart of God, inspired, infallible, and inerrant. But Paul and Luke on this mirror one another. Matthew and Mark mirror one another and they don't necessarily agree with the exact wording of Luke. But Paul does. This is what he says, verse 23. For I received from the Lord, that is Jesus. Remember, Paul learned the gospel directly from Jesus himself after Jesus had risen from the dead. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread, I'm continuing on here. Um, Yes, I I don't have that in my notes, but I'm going to continue on to the end of the chapter since it's pertinent. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. When he says a number of you, he's not talking about his audience, by the way. Think about that. You're reading this, and yeah, you'll get it one day. Uh, So anyway, a number of you have fallen asleep. (laughs) They're obviously not listening to the reading of this letter. You get it, I'm sure. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further instructions. He says, this is 
my body holding the bread, the one loaf. This is my body. And so his people, especially within the Catholic tradition, have grappled with what is he saying there, holding this bread, this is my body. They arrived at this concept, and there's more passages we could look at, one of which we will, but he's, John 6 in particular. But he says, this is my body. They, they would say, this is the idea of what they call transubstantiation. Trans meaning change. So at the moment of blessing or consecrating the elements, by the elements I mean the bread and the wine, by consecrating them, they transform, I don't want to say transform because the form doesn't change, but they, they, uh, they change into the literal blood and body the wine, the bread, literally changing to the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Um, that though on the surface there is still the appearance of bread and wine, they truly have changed and have become the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. They they. They say that it's even analogous to the incarnation. That they use this term, the real presence. And, and all of these transubstantiation, consubstantiation, Calvin's, which is kind of in between consubstantiation and my view in remembrance, um, they all, all three of those views hold to this idea of the real presence of Christ in the elements. They would just understand it a little differently. For the Catholics, that presence is a real presence because the elements were literally changed, though just not in appearance. Even as I say with regard to the incarnation, this is their analogy, not mine, that in the incarnation, God was, God became man, but even though you couldn't see God, you could only see the body the real presence of Christ was still there. Now I have a problem with that because the real Jesus is not just the God part of Jesus. The real Jesus is God and man. So that analogy does not fit, and I hope you can see this. Transubstantiation, even how they explain it, still is not analogous to the Incarnation. So I'm throwing that out there because you may have come across that analogy before, and, and, and pardon me, but that just does not fit. It demeans the humanity of Jesus Christ. The conclusion, then, is that Christ is sacrificed again. They call it the Mass. Uh, we, I want to look at this, and, and I'm going to do so very briefly because we don't have much time. But in John 6, 52 and 53, um, Jesus says you must... Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. We're going to come back to that passage, just not right now. They would say that is a literal understanding. We must eat the body of Jesus. We must drink his blood. The way we do that is John 6. Jesus was actually talking about the Lord's Supper before he inaugurated it. That is not my view, but that is their view. And the, therefore, they say we should understand then this... Uh, the elements as literally becoming the body and blood of Jesus, and therefore you are fulfilling John 6, eat my flesh, drink my blood. If you were to read about 10 verses later, though, Jesus says the words I speak to you are spirit and are life. 
they are spirit and they are life. I don't think Jesus was trying to be taken, he did not mean for himself to be taken literally there, that you would need to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have life. Understand that many of them, or some of them, I should say, not many, some of them died before Jesus rose from the dead. Does that mean they're going to hell because they did not literally eat his flesh? Otherwise, they have to take a chunk at him right then and there. Um, because the pre- if that's a prefiguring of the Lord's Supper, they didn't experience it for a couple of years. Does that mean they're going to hell? Does that mean they didn't have life? Or is Jesus getting at something different? We'll come back to that. So I do believe that when Jesus says, this is my blood... It's similar to him saying, I am the bread from heaven. Was Jesus literally bread coming from heaven so that you munch on him? He was, he was using that as a metaphor, but a very strong metaphor. I believe the very same thing when he's saying, this is my blood, this is my body. Even as he said, I am the gate. He is not literally a person that hangs on a, or three hinges and turns, okay? He is analogous, or a, that, it, that is a metaphor for him being the entranceway into the kingdom of heaven. So yes, he is a gate. Yes, he is the bread from heaven that we must partake of him for life. And it's clear in the context that him being the bread of life was figurative. Uh, To do that, though, we would have to look at much of the chapter of John 6, and we don't have time to do that. If you look in your notes, uh, John 6 is coming up. We're going to talk about it later. The, another problem that I have with this view of transubstantiation is that the elements of communion were still called the bread and the wine, not the body and blood of Christ. Here, eat the body and blood. They were still called the bread and the wine. Okay. Number three, the disciples don't give us any indication that these elements were literally the blood and body of Jesus. They don't act as if it were. They don't speak as if they were. <coughs> Number four, the disciples did not worship the elements. If they literally became the blood and body of Jesus, they are deity and should be worshipped, should they not? But they never worshipped them. Number five, how could they be Jesus? How could, I'm sorry, I worded this wrong. I'm going to have to reread it. How could they, how could they, the elements, be Jesus' crucified body and blood during the Passover meal when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, how could they be if he had yet to be sacrificed on the cross? Jesus is saying, this is my body broken for you. If it literally at that moment became his crucified body, how could that be since he had not yet been crucified? Do you understand what I'm saying there? Jesus had yet to be crucified. This, this is not his crucified body. Number six, um, Leviticus 17.4 says, you shall not eat the blood of flesh. A curse will be upon you if you do. Do not do it. That even carried over into the New Testament as they were trying to minister to uh, Jews concerning the gospel. And they laid out four guidelines, four rules to follow so as not to be an offense to Jews and still win them. Those would be convictions. And there are four of them. We find them in Acts 15. Um, So Jesus obviously is not inviting us to drink his literal blood. Um, by the way, that was a misunderstanding of pagans of, and, and an accusation. They believed that Christians were, um, were cannibals. Clearly, they are not, and that was a mischaracterization of the Lord's Supper. Number seven, um, it is not a sacrifice of Jesus all over again. Jesus was crucified, sacrificed for our sins once for all, Scripture says. 
not every time we break the bread and consecrate the, 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 the wine. And then lastly, um, it appears very clearly that if this literally becomes his body, why is it then called a memorial or a remembrance? Do this in remembrance of me. Consubstantiation is fairly similar, but different enough. They don't believe that Jesus is being sacrificed again. They would say that, and this is the... Uh, my understanding with this was the teaching of Lutheranism. Some would say it's not exactly the teaching of Lutheranism. Um, though Luther did use the phrase that Christ is with, in, and under these elements. So the word con meaning with, the substance of Christ is with or under. And the question is, is he really, did Luther really believe that the substance of Christ would be, or is this real presence a spiritual presence? And so, um, I'm sure maybe even within Lutheranism there is some debate on that. But I don't want to just categorically say this is what Luther taught because that would not be accurate. But that even though they don't change into the literal blood and body of Christ, the real presence of Christ is with or under or in the bread and the wine. And I have to step back because this is very similar to Calvin's view We have to step back and say, is this really the point of the Lord's Supper? Is there a biblical precedent, is there a biblical teaching that says that the real presence, and why we have to add the word real, I guess maybe it's opposed to the fake presence, obviously not, but the presence, that the presence of Jesus is in the elements or with the elements or under the elements I'm not sure scripture teaches that. And I'm not sure that just by saying, this is my body, this is my blood, that's what Jesus was communicating. Because if that's the case, then there is something that's mystical. Would you not agree? There's something mystical that actually happens at that moment of consecration in which, boom, suddenly, if there's not a change, there is now the real presence of Jesus. And as I take this, I am taking into me the real presence of Jesus and I, I'm going to say within the, um, the Episcopal tradition, since I've been more exposed to the Episcopal tradition than the Catholic tradition, my wife was Episcopal. I went to her charismatic Episcopal church quite a bit. They would say that when you were partaking of the elements, there is a dispensation or a dispensing of God's grace at that moment. By taking the elements, God dispenses grace into your life. And I would say that's an awesome, wonderful concept. I just, I'm not finding that in the Bible. Does me eating the bread and drinking the wine impart God's grace to me? Now, from the Catholic position, I can understand that because they believe you actually receive life. Well, that's God's grace. But that's not the consubstantiation or even Calvin's view. My question then is, does water baptism impart grace to you? That's another one of the sacraments. If it doesn't, it doesn't save you. It is truly a symbol of something that has happened. God's grace doesn't suddenly come upon me at baptism. Um, it, it is not the symbol of water baptism or the symbol of the Lord's Supper that imparts grace. As you study through Scripture, what always imparts grace, obviously God does, but he does it in response many times to what we do. 
the humble rather than the arrogant receive his grace. It is something, it is an attitude of the heart. It is the posture of the heart. It is obedience to him in which we position ourselves to be able to receive his grace. But we don't partake of something symbolic and thereby receive God's grace. Okay? So, having said all of that then, what does the Lord's Supper even do? Jesus says, excuse me, Paul says here, that Jesus was trying to, to convey that this was a, I'm going to use the term memorial service. Because you understand, I, 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 at least I hope you understand what a memorial service is. A memorial service is generally speaking a, a celebration. It is a time to celebrate the person's life, not their death. So what happens in a memorial service is people come up eventually after maybe there's some scriptures and songs and a little sermonette from the pastor or what have you. People begin to testify about the person's, what, their death, how they died. You know, the, yeah, I just saw him there as he was choking on his, it was terrible. No, they don't talk about it. They, they talk about his life. And that's what a memorial service does. It celebrates their life, not their death. And they understand that it, in this death, it is simply a transference, a graduation ceremony, if you will, into the heavens. And so it's a joyful occasion even though, yes, you will find tears because they will, you'll be separated from them for however many years and you will not see them. So this is a memorial service. It's a celebration. It is honoring Jesus and it, it causes us to celebrate then those aspects of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And so it's for this reason, he says, in remembrance of me. So we do this to remember what he has done. When the Jews, and we're going to talk about this actually a little bit this coming Sunday, in which they're getting prepared to cross the Jordan. When they cross the Jordan, one, from, one person from each tribe, a representative, goes to the middle of the Jordan, grabs a stone, and sets it up in there where they settle for that night. And it's a place that eventually becomes called Gilgal. <clears throat> it was never there before. It became their headquarters and it was a town from that point on in Israel. It's their headquarters. They set up this, and they do so as a memorial. When they see the memorial, they will do what? They will remember what happened on that day, and they will recount. Your son will ask you questions. Here's how you answer him, much as on the day of Passover. And so that memorial was to prompt them to remember all the the various aspects of that event because it was equivalent in magnitude and glory to God as the parting of the Red Sea. So this is a memorial service, meaning we do it in remembrance of him and it causes us as we reflect on it that we are actually now <coughs> proclaiming his death. We are declaring as we are doing this, by our actions taking this, we are declaring Jesus died for my sins. And it is not just something we pray about. We give a moment of silence as we pray, actually on a couple of occasions in our communion or Lord's Supper that we celebrate, because this is a time of reflection and remembering. But doing this, Paul says, is a proclamation. He says there in verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Does that mean that all of you have to stand up and declare together 
that Jesus died and is coming again. Not necessarily. That's not what he is asking you to do. Just by what he shares with us, we would understand that this, in verses 25 and 26, excuse me, 24, 23, 24, and 25, that is a proclamation. By you doing this, you are proclaiming his death until he comes. I, I take that one step further at the end of communion. You've probably noticed it, but I always ask God, help us now throughout this week to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as our witness. Because I believe that as we remember it, it should impact us so that our longing would be to share with others the grace of God and what he has done for us. Amen? So the focus here is remembrance. He also, and remembrance and proclamation. There is one more thing, a third aspect of what the Lord's Supper is. So turn to chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He actually gets into the Lord's Supper some here, but he does so because he is really speaking against participating in the pagan festivals in which they made sacrifices to their pagan gods. Though even though you're not participating in the actual sacrifice, you're there in the celebration and you're eating the food. And he says, don't do that. Revelation, when it talks about eating food offered to idols, that's what he's referring to. Now, Paul is not opposed to eating food offered to idols because if it's been offered to an idol and is sold in the market, an idol's nothing. The meat is, can ask God's blessing on it, can be received with thanksgiving, no problem with it. You just don't want to do it so that it offends your brother's conscience. I'm not going to get into that. That's chapter 8. But So Revelation is talking about when they were actually in the festival itself. Don't do that. You're actually participating in a pagan ritual. Don't do that. And so, on the heels of this then, he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving. He's talking about the Lord's Supper here. In the next paragraph that we're not going to read, he contrasts it with the, with the uh, participating in, in pagan um, services that I just mentioned. But he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving is is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. So partaking, which is that same concept of participation, it's, it's rooted in the same word there, by partaking of it, you are participating in it, okay? It doesn't mean you're literally eating the blood and the body of Jesus. That's not what he's saying there by participation. We are participating in this memorial service and remembering, and it is causing us, I think the goal here is to fall in love with the Lord and aspire to serve him with even greater uh, intensity of our heart, no? Um. So it is also a participation in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Um, what I want to do now is I want us to look at this last, these last words that Paul shares at the end of chapter 11. And he gives a warning. His warning is that you need to examine yourselves. Now, I didn't read the, the paragraphs preceding this section I read to you. But in those paragraphs, you would see that Paul is challenging the people when you come to the Lord's table, 
You don't wait for others. There's bread, there's juice, and it may be interspersed with an agape feast. Some believe that at the agape feast that they had, they would also celebrate this. But if it were just bread and wine, some of you come hungry and you eat all the bread and drink all the juice. Some of you are even getting drunk. What? Really? This is, this is embarrassing for me. That's basically what he's saying. You're embarrassing me. Please don't do this. You are so dishonoring Christ. You're not regarding the body and blood of Jesus. You're hungry. You're thirsty. So you drink it all and you eat it all. And you don't wait for the others. This should not be. And so he says, you need to examine yourself so that when you are partaking of the body, the, the bread and the wine, that you understand what it is representing here, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and you honor that. It is not just bread and wine to be consumed. And so he says, examine yourself. And in essence, number one, if you're not a believer in Jesus, this little ceremony here that they're doing, this memorial service has no meaning for you. Even many who would call themselves Christians and who aren't in examining themselves, if they come to the conclusion, you know what, I'm really not saved, they should not be participating in this. And the other is that if you're examining yourself and you realize there's a disregard for what you're doing here, you're not fully taking into consideration that this is one loaf, meaning we, one body of Christ, physical body and the spiritual body of Christ, the community of Christ, that this it is not just me and Jesus here, it is a community experience. And if you disregard others in, with regard to this, you're dishonoring the body and the blood of Christ. Don't do that. And so he says you need to step back and examine yourselves and see where your heart is really at because if it's not right, you need to get it right before you participate in it. Because you have not done that, he says, many of you are sick and ill, and some of you have even died. I'm going to just toss that out there to you. I'm trying to think of the times in which people have died by disobeying God. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, very clear. They may have been believers, they may not have. If they were not believers... I would venture to say that the rest of the body of Christ did not recognize that until much later when Luke wrote it. But I'm not convinced that, that Luke, as he's writing, is even convinced because the church is now afraid this happened to believers. You may hold a different view regardless. People disobeyed and God took their life. This is another example here in which because of this disobedience, people actually died. I don't want to say this to fill your heart with fear. All you have to do is, are you a believer? And I would venture to say every single person in this room, I know you well enough to say you are. You're a true believer in Jesus. And secondly, when you come, that I think there's enough preparation before we partake of the elements, at least on my part, in sharing with you, that your heart is, that you're recognizing, okay, this isn't just something that I'm going to eat my fill of. Because if you start grabbing the whole loaf out of my hand, I'm probably going to stop you, okay? If I see you grabbing, like, the whole tray and taking it back with you, I'm, I'm going to stop you, all right? And so it, it, it's not hard, but just make sure that you are recognizing what's going on there, okay? And you're honoring Christ in that.
All right. Um, I want to right now. How much time do I have? I'm looking at my time. Ah, eight thirty. I'm gonna try and give myself fifteen more minutes. I want us turn by the way to First Corinthians chapter five. I want us to look at this idea of the Passover. The Passover is the backdrop to the Lord's Supper, or what we also call communion. When Jesus is participating in the Passover meal, also called the Seder meal, S-E-D-E-R, the Seder meal. Wow, I skipped over something here. You know, before I do that, before I do that, I have something written down here, and that's why I have my whiteboard up here. So what am I thinking? Uh, Wow, but you know what? I left all of my. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Dry eraser. A uh, dry erase marker. Okay. Do you guys remember? And I'm, I, I want to keep this short because I need to. But Old Testament circumcision and New Testament water baptism. this right here was in essence an inauguration into the community of believers Um, but it was the focus was twofold at least circumcision it was the focus was natural born if you were if you were a foreigner being added to the community then you had to proclaim a faith in Yahweh and so it wasn't just, it wasn't physical for them, but spiritual. The idea, though, is that Old Testament circumcision was for the babies, eight days old, to be accepted into the community, into the Jewish community. So it was based on physical, natural birth. But then it also looked ahead to faith, and so it looked ahead to a spiritual birth. The New Testament, however, water baptism has nothing to do with. Uh, physical birth. It has nothing to do with being physically born into the community of believers. Uh, This is emphasized throughout the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Jews are ridiculed because their focus is still on their heritage in Abraham. And and John the Baptist says that God can raise up uh, descendants out of these stones. Uh, Jesus says something along these lines. And so the idea is not physical inheritance, but it is always a spiritual birth. Not a physical birth into the community of believers. That is how Old Testament circumcision and New Testament water baptism is. And so, but they both symbolize what I'm going to call a putting off of the flesh. Okay? This represents the death, our identifying with the death of Jesus Christ. We died with Christ in baptism. Water baptism is a symbol of that. Old Testament circumcision was a symbol of circumcising the heart or the putting off of the flesh, dying to selfish desires, okay? So this would be looking to that, and same with New Testament water baptism, but we cannot make the mistake of saying, therefore, Old Testament circumcision and water baptism are the same thing except Old Testament, New Testament, and therefore infants should be baptized. We looked at that last, or two weeks ago, we realized that's not the case. Now, as we begin to look at the Lord's Supper, 
Um, I'm going to erase this. If you look at the Lord's Supper, okay, we have a focal point of redemption in the Old Testament that redemption was found in free, freedom from Egyptian slavery. And therefore, we have the birth of Passover. Okay? Passover was that hallmark of freedom. It was <clears throat> celebrated that night in which the tenth plague hit the firstborn of Egypt. It broke the back of Pharaoh and crushed him to the point where he said, get out of here, go, leave now before everything is destroyed. We don't want you here. Get out of here. You've got like 10 seconds flat to leave. I'm paraphrasing. And so this idea of redemption is reflected in that freedom from Egyptian slavery. They were bought. Uh, Exodus 6 says, I bought you from, from Egypt, okay? As my firstborn. This also, however, this concept of redemption is found in the cross, and specifically as it's applied to us, it is freedom from sin, okay? Jesus came to rescue us deliver us from sin, even as Moses came to deliver the people of, of Israel from Egyptian bondage. So this is freedom from sin. And this then would, would, is what the Lord's Supper reflects. So we have the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, we have Passover in the Old, and I'm going to challenge you now, don't make the mistake of then saying Passover is the Old Testament Lord's Supper. It's not. Even though the spiritual backdrop of redemption is the same, they are used to convey two different things, and as we move into the New Testament, we don't see a replacement of the Passover with the Lord's Supper. So that's why I have written down here um, that the Lord's Supper has a tie to, but doesn't is not the symbolism of the Passover. In Luke twenty-two seven to to twenty, um, can I ask you? Uh, and you can turn there if you would like. I'm assuming you've read it, right? Because all of us being good boys and girls did our homework and read the scripture passages, right? So I'm, as your teacher, I'm going to assume you read the passage. Kudos for you. Great. I'm going to ask you, did Jesus hand them his body or did he hand them his bread? The bread. bread. He handed them bread. He did not hand them his body. Um. This right here, the Seder meal, had bread as a part of its celebration. If we were to look at Exodus 12, 8, and I don't know, maybe someone can turn there, but in Exodus 12, 8, there were three parts to this Passover meal that later became known as the Seder meal. 
And I'm going to touch on the Seder meal in just a moment. But the Passover meal had the Passover lamb. It had the uh, bitter herbs. And it had the unleavened bread. Those three elements. There were other things incorporated into it. I'm not exactly sure of when each of these elements were added. Uh, Even today, there are more elements that are being proposed to be added that I won't get into. But there are basically uh, six elements, seven if you include the bowl of salt water that you're really not drinking or eating, but I'll talk about that in a moment. The maror, which is a bitter herb, that is a part of the original Passover meal. It symbolized the bitterness and harshness of the slavery. The coruscant, which is a, uh, a sweet brown mixture that represented the mortar, I am told, used by the Hebrew slaves to build the storehouses. That was not a part of the original Passover meal, but it is used in the Seder meal. The carpus, which is a vegetable, uh, lettuce, something like this, other than bitter herbs, and it, it was dipped into the salt water and then eaten. Uh, it could be parsley, celery, lettuce, even a boiled potato, it says here. And it was dipped into the salt water to, and the salt water represented the tears of the uh, Egypt, the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. The zeroa or zroa um, is the roasted lamb or a goat shank bone. Could be even a chicken wing or chicken neck. Okay, um, but that would be the lamb. The beitza, which would be a hard-boiled egg, it symbolizes. Um, the offerings given at the temple in Jerusalem. I imagine that this was incorporated after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Um, But there would be a boiled egg, and then there would be the matzah. This is the third element of the actual Passover meal. The matzah would many times be a loaf of bread. The matzah that's sold in stores today is more like a cracker um, rather than flatbread. And then lastly, as I've already mentioned, the bowl of salt water. So seven elements in the Seder meal, only three of which are really a part of the original Passover meal. As Jesus is celebrating this, some of these elements being present, which elements did Jesus choose to be a part of the Lord's Supper? The bread. The bread. That's it. The bitter herbs are not there and the Passover lamb is not there. Now, we would have to say that in all fairness, they, they would drink wine, but that is not one of the three elements that Moses instructs the people to partake of in the Passover meal. Now, you would imagine, well, they've got to drink something. So what they drink, we don't know. Most probably wine, perhaps some water fresh from a, a creek. We don't know. Fresh from a rock, in their case, on, on some instances. But the... There is only one touch point, one similarity between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. It would be a mistake for us then to say that the Lord's Supper is the Old Testament Passover. Now granted, the bread is the similarity there. If it is not a remake or a redo of the Passover... We have to be careful in saying then 
that the bread that we eat at the Lord's table must be unleavened. That was a command for the Passover. That is not a command that we ever see in the New Testament Lord's Supper. Though it is very, very traditional because that was the type of bread that Jesus passed around. It was unleavened bread. So just because that was unleavened bread, we have to be careful. Well, the Lord's Supper is not the Passover. Let's please understand that. They have a similar spiritual backdrop, redemption, but they are not the same. Um, Actually, there is one element that was commanded to be eaten at the Passover that Jesus used, the bread, and one that was not, the wine. He chooses these two because they are handy at the table. Okay? Not because he is trying to give us now a New Testament version of the Old Testament Passover. That's not what he's trying to do. Now, if we were to look at 1 Corinthians 5, as you're, you're turned there, 1 Corinthians 5, I'm not going to get into the context except to say this is where he rebukes the Corinthians for thinking that somehow it was okay for a man to be sleeping with a stepmother. And he says, you need to get rid of that sin. And this is how he says it. He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? That is a, an analogy there. The yeast in this analogy, <clears throat> not all the times Jesus used the concept of yeast, but in this, the yeast is sin. The dough is the body of Christ. A little bit of sin in your midst will end up affecting your entire body. So he sums it up by saying, get rid of the yeast. The Jews, before Passover, would sweep their house and make sure that they were, because they used yeast every day, except for Passover meal or Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they said, and so they would sweep their house and make sure there was no yeast anywhere. And then they would make bread without yeast. <clears throat> so in that way, they would get rid of the yeast from their home. And this is kind of what Paul is probably getting into, get rid of the yeast. But he goes on, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. This is what you're called to be, a people of God without sin issues. This is what we're supposed to be. Verse 8, therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Here is my question. What is this festival that he refers to in verse 8? He's telling us to keep the festival. What festival is that? You want to give a try at it, Leon? The remembrance of him whenever we get together and we have a communion together as part of the body. Okay. Can I ask you this, though? Do we see any hint of the Lord's Supper in this? Look at the passage there. Look it over, study it, look at it. Does he hint at the Lord's Supper here? When he talks about bread without yeast, is he talking about the bread of the communion? He's not. He's actually saying, you're the bread without the yeast. So then what is the festival? It's not Passover. It's not the Lord's Supper. What is it? Let us keep the feast or the festival. 
Because we're supposed to do it with godly character. He is talking very simply about the Christian life. It is a celebration of freedom from sin. And that is what he is getting at here. They obviously were celebrating in sin. They were happy for this guy. You've got freedom in Christ. You can do anything. Well, that's not what, he, what Paul was teaching. No, you don't have a free license to sin. That's not what grace is. But they were taking that license and extending it to this man. And Paul said, man, this is sin. Even the pagans don't do this. It's sin. Call him out. It's wrong. And if he doesn't repent, you need to disfellowship him. You need to get rid of that yeast. So this celebration, this festival, is the Christian life. Jesus is the Paschal or the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. It's just that this festival is neither the Passover nor is it the Lord's Supper. And therefore, I'm just going to suggest, let's not feel incumbent upon us when we keep the festival of the Lord's Supper which this isn't talking about, that we must have um, unleavened bread. That's very traditional in many, many churches. We offer it in our church. And the reason why we offer it in our church, and there was a time in which we didn't, but I realized that there were people there that had a problem taking bread that had leaven in it because of the way they were brought up. That they, You had the little wafer, you had the little cup, and, or sometimes you would dip the little wafer in the big cup or you would take the little cup, drink it, and take the, the little, I don't know, it seems like a little rice patty, honestly. No flavor at all. Um, I think that when they made it, they, they have this instrument that just sucks every bit of flavor out of it. And um, it is probably cardboard minus the glue. Um, anyway, that's the way it tastes. I don't mean to complain. But the truth is, it's not incumbent upon us to celebrate the Lord's Supper with unleavened bread. Even though that was the type of bread Jesus used, it's never we're never instructed to do that. And we don't want to just look at the Passover and say, well, that's what they did in the Passover, therefore that's what we must do, because the Lord's Supper is not a reflection of the Passover. It is a reflection of redemption, even as the Passover is. Okay? All right. I want to conclude. Do I have time? Oh, this is so... Ah! We, we, church, we have to look at John 6. We have to. We have to. Ah, a whole sermon could be preached on this passage. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that. I promise you. I want us to be able to have some prayer time at the end, individual prayer time, group prayer time, rather. If you can explain it in 10 seconds, No, I can't do it in 10 seconds. Jesus is saying... You must eat my flesh. Look at that right there in verse, first starting with verse 53. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, and drink his blood, sorry, um, you have no life. It doesn't sound like that, though. It, it does. And it offends some people because they don't get it. They truly believe they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and that's not what Jesus was saying, so they get offended and they don't follow him anymore. Don't you think Jesus would have said, hey guys, I'm sorry, you just misunderstood. Uh, no, they, 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 he's saying you must eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, or you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 
And I will raise him up at the last day. Is he talking about the Lord's Supper? Is he prophesying the Lord's Supper? Because if he is, this teaches transubstantiation, not just consubstantiation, but he also teaches we are saved by participating in the Lord's Supper. And if you don't practice the Lord's Supper, you're not going to heaven. That must be the conclusion. And there's nowhere else in Scripture that teaches it. And it doesn't even teach it here. We know that he's talking symbolically because he says these words of mine, they're spirit and they're life. These are spiritual words. As Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 2, that these spiritual words are to be spiritually discerned. Okay, He is not saying this is literal. He is not even saying that he is the literal bread that is sent from heaven. But he is from heaven and he does bring life. And that's his point. And that is what he focuses on throughout this chapter. He is the one who brings life. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will do what? I will raise him up at the last day. He will have life forever and evermore. The focus here is life, not that Jesus is this literal kernel crust of real literal bread. That's not what he's saying. He's not calling us to be cannibals, that somehow we have to eat the literal body and blood of Jesus because if that's the case then he says if you don't if you don't participate in that and sufficiently bless the elements so that they trans, trans that they change into the actual literal body and blood of Jesus then you ain't going to heaven and that cannot be what he is saying because heaven is not attained by observing a ceremony it is always through faith in Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? He's saying that by by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he is saying you must have this intimate relationship with me. Now let's understand, and I am truly not dumbing this down and trying to make it palpable, which maybe is a play on words there, palpable meaning eatable. Um, but he... but. Jesus truly, in his culture, eating was a means of fellowship. The agape meal was an opportunity to love one another in fellowship. For him then to say, you must eat of me and drink of me. He, he, remember, he also says, you must drink of this living water that I give. She, the woman at the well thought she, that he meant literal water. So she says, oh my goodness, yeah, I'll let it down. Get me some of this water. I don't want to die. I want to live forever. And Jesus, eh, you're not getting it. Let me help you get it. Go get your husband. Oh, now, she, now he starts touching on a sin issue in his, her life. And see, that's it. For her to have this relationship with him, which was the crooks of what he was getting at, to truly know him as Messiah, she was going to need to repent of her sin. That was the stumbling block. That's what was going to keep her from experiencing this relationship with Christ and have the Spirit of God in her that would bring this life to her or symbolically living water. So even when Jesus talks about living water, he is, he is talking about it symbolically, not this literal water, any more than he's talking about his literal body and literal blood, but that as you partake of this, you are partaking in a relationship with him and you receive life. 
So Jesus' point here is life. And then he goes on in verse 64, yet there are some of you who do not believe. Um, Verse 69, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That was Jesus' point, to believe in me. But in such a personal and profound way that in this relationship they are bonded together even as those would be bonded together over a meal. That's the type of communion and fellowship and intimacy that he longed, okay? Um, From our culture, and then I'm sure even in Jesus, a very strange way of saying to believe in him in order to have life. Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. And so he invites us into this most intimate relationship with the God that created them. And in order, to, in order to have this life, he is the bread of life, in order for us to have this life and be raised up, we must believe in him. And he says in an earlier verse, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Literal hunger, literal thirsty, no spiritual hunger, spiritual thirsty. So we must partake of him. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the truth of your word. It's confess, Lord, it's hard to understand at points, but God, let it grip us. We we want to have this intimacy and fellowship with you, God. And, and I just pray, Father, open our eyes and open our hearts to this vast depth of relationship and intimacy you invite us to. Uh, into and and I just ask God that as we begin that as we continue that venture in that personal relationship with you call us God from deep to deep to deep to know you more to seek you more to love you more be devoted to you more to long for you more and to be satisfied by you more this is what we long for Jesus Satisfy us as we partake of you. In Jesus' name.